Got the volume right. Okay. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Um, so this panel is on Section 12J companies, um, and I think this is something that not everyone necessarily understands very well. Uh, at this stage, it is still a very small part of the investment arena, but it is something that is growing. Um, and I think it is something that has a place, so that's why it's on the agenda. I'm gonna, I've got my fellow panelists here who are the experts. I'm really just going to be moderating the panel. So I'm going to give them a chance to maybe just start off by giving us a, an understanding of what Section 12J companies are. Because as I say, I don't want to assume that people know. What is important is that the Section 12J refers to a section in the Income Tax Act. So in other words, it's all about tax. But what's important with any investment is it should never be all about the tax. Um, and I think that's something that we want to delve into a little bit is what are the investment merits aside from getting overwhelmed by a tax break, which people sometimes get a little bit excited about and then will make bad decisions thereafter. Okay. So I've got some experts, as I said. I'm going to start with John T. on the far side there. John T. Sachs, he's a partner at Geltech. Geltech is one of the players in this space. They apparently consult on uh, formation, admin, and fundraising for Section 12J companies. Uh, then I've got uh, Jeff Miller here on, on immediate, immediately to my right. Uh, Jeff's a very experienced venture capitalist. Uh, as you will see throughout the talk, venture capital is a theme of Section 12J as well, so that's the underlying investment. Um, and he is the CEO of Grovest. And then finally, I've got Neil Hobbs, who is the CEO of Anuva, another uh, company that specializes in the Section 12J space. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask the first question to John T, and that is to give us some overview of what Section 12J is all about. We, we can't avoid the tax, so I'm gonna, but I'm going to ask him to keep the tax side of things uh, to a minimum because we really hear about the investments and not the tax. Thank you. Andrew, uh, can you hear me? Okay. Um, morning. So Section 12J, it's, it's out of the Income Tax Act, and it's really an incentive which Treasury introduced in 2009 it only, you know, in the last four or so years took track, you know, had any traction due to various amendments, but that's a side issue. But it's an incentive that encourages South African taxpayers to keep their money onshore, to invest in Section 12J companies. And these are normal companies. They're typically actually funds. And these funds have certain registrations with the FSCA and with SARS. But the incentive is invest into these companies. You get a beautiful 100% tax break, um, which can offset against your taxable income. And then these companies take the funds and they invest into certain investments and really or in certain businesses. And these need to be operational businesses in South Africa. And ultimately, the intention you have from Treasury is to stimulate the local economy, create jobs, and uh, really incentivize South Africans not to take all their funds offshore. The, the legislation has taken off over recent years, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but it's really at now that it's, it's going straight up the J-curve. It's doubled in uh, the most recent years in terms of funds invested in 12J. Um, but I think as, a, as an investment class, investors, South African investors should really take Section 12J, um, you know, allow it to form part of their portfolio of investments. Okay. 
Thank you, Jonty. So I think just maybe to summarize, the bottom line is when you invest in a Section J, you take your million rand, you give it to a Section J company, the taxman gives you 450,000 rand back if you're a marginal tax rate payer. So in other words, you immediately get a rebate on your investment. Uh, and then the underlying investment is in private equity or venture capital in the SME space. The whole intention of this whole um, uh, part of the Income Tax Act is to stimulate small business and entrepreneurship in that space. Um, and I think what's very interesting for me when I was talking to these guys ahead of the session is that they're very passionate about this. And I think if we do manage to get Section 12J right, it's got the potential to make a big impact on South Africa's economy because it's targeted at the right space. So I'm going to ask Jeff, what does he think the future of Section 12J looks like? Because I know it's very, very small at this stage. So even though these guys are passionate, at the moment it's really such a tiny part of the economy that I'm not sure that it's having the impact that was intended. Uh, thanks, Andrew. So Section 12J, as was alluded to earlier, is that it's been around for five years and it's growing rapidly and it's becoming now a real asset class to actually be considered. Uh, in the last year, it doubled, so we've got in excess of 6 billion rands. So I know in terms of PE funds and all the rest of it, uh, it's very small, but it's growing at a high pace. We've got about 160-odd registered Section 12Js currently in the market. Um, and each one of them has got different themes, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into, um, is that it could be energy, hospitality, tech, uh, general uh, businesses, uh, early stage private equity, so to speak. But I think why, why Section 12J is because traditionally these type of businesses couldn't get funding from your traditional sources from your banks. You, they didn't have securities, they didn't have proof of cash flows, and as a result, uh, they, were, they really uh, unlisted SPAC. But where, what government decided to do, and I think this is a great initiative, is that from a public-private partnership, so they're giving up some tax, and, and the public or the private sector is now running these businesses uh, because you have a now risk-adjusted return because of the tax benefit, you're giving these early-stage businesses a chance to get off the ground. I think, and not only doing that, I think for, you know, for South Africa, it's very important that we create uh, entrepreneurship and job creation. And by doing this, uh, we, are, we are actually creating lots and lots of jobs and in the spirit of entrepreneurship. In fact, uh, a new Section 12J Association has just been established, and one of the, the responsibilities of this association is, to, is to currently doing a survey to develop or to understand how many jobs we created and the cost per job actually uh, it's, it's cost the government. And in, in, you know, just off at the outset, we believe that the cost per job created from the Section 12J initiative will probably be the, the cheapest job, cost per job created out of all the initiatives, and we're creating a sustainable job as not once off. Okay, thanks, Jeff. So, as you said, a key objective here is to try to stimulate SMEs and create jobs. And I know at ANUVA they believe that their focus and their um, edge is in, in the job creation space. So they pick investments based on their potential to create jobs. So I'm going to ask Neil, um, give us some insight into that. How does that work? Why do you think that you're 
creating jobs better than someone who maybe is investing outside of Section J, uh, 12J? Yeah, um, we've created uh, not a lot of jobs, but 330 odd jobs in the last uh, three years, four years. And our direct cost per job creation, um, if we take the tax element of that, is about 150,000 Rand per job. And I think IDC work on about half a million Rand per job created. So the reason why we believe we, we have a, a slight edge is n because not only are we providing financial capital into the businesses we invest in, we're also putting a lot of intellectual capital in. So our investors into our fund generally are seasoned entrepreneurs or, or uh, business owners, and they're putting capital into our business, and at the same time they're putting their expertise, especially at the strategic level, in um, how we develop and uh, grow these businesses. It's a, it's a big challenge to take a small business, maybe making 2 million rand a year profit, uh, and employing 40 or 50 people, to making 20 million rand a year profit and employing 400, 500 people. So I think the key element here is a combination of business expertise and, and business capital. Right, so um, you, you touched on an interesting thing that I didn't appreciate, which is just how small these investments are that are being made. So, you know, my knowledge of private equity is generally that you'll raise a fund of 800 million to two or three billion maybe, and then you'll allocate that to 10 or 12 different companies. And I was surprised to hear that in this space you raise a fund of about 150 million, and you still allocate that between five or six different companies. So maybe I can ask Jeff, you know, how is that a, a, a side of the market that is, is even viable at those really small levels? Um, and uh, the reason why that's an important question is we're going to get a little bit later on to the fees. Um, and, but I think it's an important question because these guys operate in a really, really tiny edge of the market. So the, the industry is just in its infancy. I mean, uh, it really is starting out. So it's, uh, a lot of people probably in this room haven't been exposed to Section 12J before, and so hopefully Bobinia yeah, uh, we're doing something good. But I think it is gaining traction. And I think over time the funds will obviously scale, but I think in order to have a meaningful fund, we spoke about 150 million being somewhere where you can have probably have spread, you can have a diversification, and you can actually make some uh, interesting investments. I think it also depends on which type of business you're in because if you are in say hospitality or if you're in energy there is a, a element where you can actually use some leverage to scale that up to a billion maybe uh, but the bottom line is that um, in terms of Section 12J, you have to have a minimum of five investments in terms of le legislation, and no one investment can be greater than 20% of the capital raised. So by nature, you have to have a minimum of five over a period of three years. But I think the, you know, the bigger portfolios will have a bigger spread. Uh, and, and then, Jonti, just a, a follow-on from that is obviously in that very small edge or a very small sector of the market, we're talking about SMEs, we're talking about a high-risk space, um, and you're only getting five or six investments. Uh, is this, what is the risk profile of this like, and is it, is it really um, something that is kind of the, the, the area where you can really only operate if you've got a lot of money and you don't mind losing it? I think uh, as a disclaimer, um, Section 12J as an investment 
class is on the high end of risk. Uh, you are investing into a unlisted business, um, effectively getting shares into a company, and these are you know, private equity shares into a company. But from a risk element, um, there are very various types of Section 12 jet companies in the market, and the nature of their risk has determined how much they've raised. So. 58% of last year's 3 billion rand that was invested in 12J went into property-backed Section 12J companies. And Section 12J are in fact not allowed to invest into property unless they're in the hotel or hospitality sector of the market. So what investors have done who are interested in 12J, they've gone and they've invested into property-backed Section 12J companies because there's an underlying asset that's underpinning the, uh, the investment. And we've seen a flurry of capital into these investments. You know, if they if the investment does go south, you have an asset that's underpinning it. And then as you go down in the different classes of, of investments, um, the risk profile goes up and up and up, and all, that, all the way down to the bottom to the pure VC, pure investments into startup businesses, into tech businesses, those type of 12Js are much more high risk, high reward potentially if they do well, but high risk, and as a result, only 4% of funds that I'm aware of in the 12J space, uh, so, or let me rephrase, of investments in 12J, only 4% was allocated to tech investments. Um, is this for investors who love risk? Who you know, I I would say it's a combination of an investor who doesn't like paying tax, and that's probably everyone, and an investor who has got a portion of his portfolio which he can allocate to something that is a little bit riskier. Particularly given that these investments are pre-tax investments. You know, who who loves paying tax? I'd much rather invest into property. And I'm guessing in 12J you get a higher return if you invest into a property 12J versus the, uh, the listed market currently in property, where 12J gives you the amplified return through the tax benefit, um, and you know so it's a combination of a lot of elements. Uh, thanks, John T. So, so Neil, um, I mean you, you guys are are not necessarily operating in the property space as you as you explained to me uh, when we were chatting ahead of the session. Maybe you can just give us some idea of the underlying investments and and are these by nature really ve mostly venture capital or are we talking slightly later stage private equity? I mean, I assume from the size that really, as, as John Tia said and Jeff's also alluded to, the risk profile is higher and it is more venture capital startup than more established or are you finding other opportunities that are that are maybe slightly lower risk. Andrew, I think just uh, to address the risk, uh, the perception of risk and the reality of risk are two different things. The perception that is that in a smaller business, risk is high. But in fact, government, when they put this legislation together, were very smart because they worked on a pure equity model. So the capital that goes into a venture capital company is pure equity, and the money that is then invested into the underlying company is also pure equity. So stabilizing your balance sheet by replacing debt with equity has a tremendously um, uh, impact, it has a huge impact on the risk profile of the companies we're investing in. So if I look at, at our group, uh, we have virtually no gearing. Uh, and if you're primarily equity funded, uh, your risk profile is much lower. The, the consequence of negative trading trends uh, are not so catastrophic as when you're highly leveraged. So um, I think that's really important to understand. As far as the type of companies we're investing in, we're looking for early stage private equity. So we're looking for a company that is up and running, that is profitable, and that has a, a very high degree of operational leverage. That means that 
um, a small increase in turnover has quite a strong increase on the bottom line. So we're looking for companies with the opportunity for a lot of growth. They might be um, local companies that we want to take national, um, where, where they have a high margin, high opportunity for growth, and we can push them strongly past uh, the break-even point. Um, adding the working capital, if companies growing fast, they need a lot of extra working capital. So that working capital we put in voluntarily, and we put in the management of the systems to assist. Not replacing the management, but assisting the management. So I, I think what we're doing really, and I think most of the 12J companies are similar, we're looking for companies with good opportunity uh, that can use additional capital and additional intellectual input. So Neil, maybe just to follow up, because in the private equity space, it, the game is usually the use of leverage and balance sheet structuring and that. So you're saying with no gearing, uh, you th still think that the returns are are lucrative enough to make this all worthwhile, particularly in this very small end of the world, in, of the world where potentially fees are going to have a very big impact. Um, is that is that really your belief that um, leverage is not needed and you're still going to get the return? It, it's more than a belief; it's a fact. Um, <laughs> That what happens with 12 day where you've got the tax deduction, what you're doing is you're effectively lowering your cost of equity. So whereas a, an equity investor might, might be looking for a 25% yield um, or for leveraged investment, um, here you might be looking at a 17% cost of your equity. Uh, and that's what we calculated at. So first of all, the, the investor having already uh, got a substantial tax break is, is looking, uh, well, his equity is cheaper now. He's looking for a return on 550,000 Rand out of his million, as opposed to, well, if I put it differently, for 550,000 Rand, you've bought a million Rand investment. Um, if we look at the price earnings multiples of uh, smaller companies, you typically, most owner managed businesses or smaller businesses will sell at more or less a five times PE multiple, which is a 20% yield. So even if you take the fees out, you should end up with about a 17, 16, or 17% yield. And if I measure ANUVA over the last five years, our yield has actually been 16.2%, and that's after costs and after fees. So if you add the tax break on top of that, you sit with an extraordinary return. But if we just look at the underlying returns in the smaller private equity space that we've been able to achieve, I think 16.2% when the markets elsewhere have gone nowhere is pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, those are, those are obviously great returns. Um, so, Jeff, just... Um, in this environment that we're in in South Africa, where the economy is in extremely poor shape, what is your findings in terms of the opportunities that are out there for you to invest in? Um, and is it more of a problem on uh, there aren't enough opportunities, or is it more of a problem there's not enough capital coming into this space? Obviously, you're probably going to say, I need more capital because people always do want more investment, but is, where is the problem, and are you actually finding good opportunities at good prices, um, but maybe where the, the prospects at this stage look very bleak. I think the secret to Section 12J investing is quick deployment of capital because you know it's an equity investment as opposed to typical PE where it's maybe in commandant type structure where there's a drawdown. So here investors actually subscribe for shares into the Section 12J. So you obviously want to deploy it as quickly as possible. We manage uh, for our own account, we manage uh, nine funds. 
and we manage 44 funds on behalf of uh, third parties. And we, obviously, the, the pipeline is very, very important. And uh, we focus on it. And I, I think, if the, going back to the question, I think we don't have a problem with deal flow. Uh, I think we've got very, very good quality deal flow with, uh, in, in the various uh, mandates that we run. But, uh, and I think we're looking for capital. Uh, so we could really do with more capital. Okay, so um, the one thing about private equity, which people in the room will know, is the exit strategy matters. Okay, so we've talked about getting in, but one of the questions that I think is important is how are we going to get back out of these things, especially in this very small end of the market where listing is not necessarily an option. So maybe if I can ask Neil, what are the kind of exit strategies that you guys envisage because at this stage remember we haven't got to the point where exit is needed so in other words we're still at the early stage one thing you do need to understand is you have to hold the investment for five years to get the tax break if you sell within five years you have to pay back your 450,000 to SARS okay so the five-year period is important because at that point I think a lot of people are then going to be wanting to exit and maybe the liquidity is not going to be there. So how, how do you solve that problem? I know you haven't solved it yet. How do you in, in, anticipate solving it? Uh, and, Andrew, it's, it's, uh, to an extent, it's something that we're all looking at, and no one has yet got to the end of five years. Um, but I think something to note is that uh, not all investors invested at the same time. And uh, a critical element will be whether this, uh, this allowance is rolled over when it comes to 2021. So if we look at our, our capital raising profile, we've tended to be raising more capital each year. In other words, if our first investor wants to exit next year, um, the chances are we'll be raising additional capital to buy him out at that point in time. So within our fund, we have an, an opportunity for an investor to signal that he wishes to withdraw, and then we will arrange the capital internally to, to take him out. Obviously, that's, that's where we have a small investor. If it's a major investor, he's probably very much involved in the management of the business anyway, um, so has a, a better understanding of, of where we are there. Um, the other, so that's the one opportunity, is for the company to buy out the investor when they choose to exit and replace his capital with fresh capital. The other strategy is to develop a sinking fund to start taking investors out as their investment matures. The third is to... Um, realize assets within the fund and what we're doing is we're taking smaller private equity assets and we're making them bigger where the private equity funds would probably have an appetite for them. Uh, we have a relationship with a private equity fund who are looking at what we've developed and saying when it gets to a certain point we'd like to take it over. So that's really the third way is selling the assets on and then distributing the cash. And the fourth way is probably listing the fund. And um, if we're giving good returns, consistently good returns, why would you want to sell an asset that, yes, it gave you a tax break to start with, but you're still getting a satisfactory return? So if we can keep returns at sort of 10% up to 16 17%, it should be an attractive uh, asset to retain. And um, the opportunity of putting that onto the, onto the stock market, whether it's the uh, Zorex or the Altex, uh, I think will be a very good way of giving the, the investor the opportunity of exiting at a time and at a price that they choose. So just one quick clarity, uh, question of clarity is I understood that it was only the initial investor that got the tax break. A second round investor doesn't. Is that correct? That's correct. So um, 
Personally, I would love to list a fund where the subscribers get a tax break and then see how the market uh, treats the, 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 the pricing of that um, share once the tax break has been expired. Okay, thanks. So, um, and Jeff, uh, you mentioned that actually you are looking at a listing option for one of your funds. Can you maybe just elaborate on that? Yeah, so we've, we've got a fund that it's in its fourth year. Next year will be its fifth year. It's an energy fund. Uh, takes, uh, it's a nice yield fund generating good dividends and it pays uh, in good yields with good long-term PPAs. And uh, what we're doing is we've been talking to the JSE for a number of years and actually now they've agreed to list Section 12Js onto the market. In fact, it will be under the Altec section, but Section 12Js will have its, its own little section. Uh, they've actually put out a discussion paper. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, and all, all things being equal, we're looking to list our first uh, fund on the JC this year. Okay, great. So listing maybe is an option. Um, as I said, you don't get the tax break there, but, ma but as Neil said, if the returns are 16 or 17 percent, uh, maybe you don't even need a tax break um, to be able to enjoy uh, the, the investment. Um, John T, uh, Neil mentioned 2021. What, what is the story there and, um, and what is the sunset clause that applies to Section 12J? Uh, when, when SARS introduced Section 12J, they had an end date, and that end date is the end of June 2021, which is effectively two years from now. Um, what, this, what this entails is that investors into Section 12J companies, up until that date, they get their tax deduction. They can claim the tax deduction, they get to enjoy the benefit. If it's not extended, uh, investors post that date won't get a tax deduction. Uh, as industry, we, we're working ties, uh, you know, working really hard to put together this survey that Jeff mentioned and to report to Treasury to get them to extend it. You know, if you look at uh, foreign jurisdictions like the UK, Canada, Australia, where similar legislation has really taken off and been in, in, you know, in those markets for many years, they've really done well. And we, we need now to convince Treasury that uh, our work is worth it. Okay, I'm going to open up for questions. Maybe just two things to clarify. One is that you, the tax break here is on the investment. So you get a tax break on the contribution. The, the, the returns are taxed. So you don't get a tax break on the returns. And what's very interesting as well is when you sell the investment, the capital gains tax is from zero. So in other words, you don't get to deduct your base cost because you didn't, the, your base cost was tax-free. So you actually pay on the full gain. So it's not entirely, um, you know, it's not quite as lucrative from a tax point of view, but the big attraction is the once-off, which is why the sunset clause only matters um, because it's the investment going in. As long as you've made it before 2021, you will get the tax break. Um, but. But as, as, as the guys have said, they want to extend it. Questions from the floor? Maya. Have we got a, a mic? There we go. It's coming from the back. Are we, it's not, we're not hearing you properly. Just check if it's on. Yeah, yeah maybe you shouldn't ask a question. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get this mic working in the front? Yeah. Sorry. Let's. I think it's 
journalist. Just <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember where. I'm upsetting technology today. Um, but as a journalist, Section 12J gives go. me a headache because I get people writing emails to me like, I want to invest in Section 21. How do I do that? Um, so, and people, all they see is tax-free, tax break, and they want to invest in it. They've got this risk concept is like, you know, that is no understanding the risk. But my question is, and this really relates to 2021, Treasury isn't thrilled for 12J. They're seeing it, and a little bit John to what you were saying, people finding a way to still get a reasonable investment in property but not pay tax. Um, and when you say only 4% went into tech, you know, is it actually doing what intention was or is it just becoming another tax loophole for rich people and I think that's the, really the question that you're going is, is that you're going to have to answer to Treasury in, by 2021 uh, I'd like to answer that question if I can um, so we have had many engagements with Treasury and one thing I can tell you is that I was actually blown away how switched on they are and how they were able to actually interact with us and actually listen and actually understand and, and, and come to you know, arrangements that made sense. So I think on the one hand, I think the whole idea is to create entrepreneurship and create jobs. Now, you, we all talk about this hospitality industry. Now, just by default, I don't think it was ever intended that it would turn out this way. But the hospitality industry is creating the most jobs out of all the sectors because you actually have the build-up. So you've got all the construction jobs, you've got all the suppliers of the materials. Then you have the permanent jobs that are created within the hotel industry or at that hotel. And then you have all the downstream benefits, which are the taxis and the restaurants and the tour operators and all the rest of it. So when we do is coming out of our studies is that, that the hotel industry has actually created the most jobs. I also think that in terms of governments, long-term policy, they say by 2030 they want to have 30 million visitors coming into the country. At the moment we've got 10 million visitors a year and by doing that I think that we require the hospitality industry to grow. So, so I think by default it was, it's, it's, it's actually it's been positive. I don't think it was ever intended. I think they thought that it would go more into tech. Uh, but tech is real early stage VC. Uh, uh, what we thought would happen, but it's not happening. It's going more into growth uh, businesses. And I think because you are taking th uh, third party money. So you have to be careful. Other questions? Who's got the mic? There we go. In the Th thank you for the presentation. I have two questions. One is, what are the requirements? Are there any minimum? Okay, um, I have two questions. Um, the first one is, what are the requirements to be eligible uh, to participate? Are there any minimums or anything of that sort? And then secondly, if Neil would, could kindly just elaborate on one of the exit strategies of using a sinking fund, um, how would that work? The first question was about requirements yeah. for the minimum. Are you talking about from an individual or from a, a company that wants um, yeah. Section 12J capital? Okay. An individual. Yeah, the, um, the subscription minimums are really determined by each company. Um, as a rule, if it's a million rand or more, that does not require a public offering. 
So most investors will be able to invest a million or more into the fund of their choosing if that fund is raising capital at that point in time. If the investment amount is less than a million, generally there needs to be a prospectus that's an off in, in issue and uh, capital will be raised against that prospectus, which is a CRPC approved prospectus. Um, I, I just want to make the point that any taxpayer can make a 12-J investment, whether it's company, trust or an individual. Um, the second uh, question related to the, the creation of a sinking fund to uh, pay investors out. So what we would look at here is, you know, we've asked our investors to give us a six-month notice as to when they would wanting, be wanting to exit. So they'd be saying, right, uh, Neil, we're planning to exit February next year. That would give us an opportunity of building up cash within the organization that we have sufficient cash to buy their shares back at the point that they choose to exit. Now, that could be by simply taking it out of operating cash flows internally, or it could be by um, introducing an element of leverage into certain of the companies that are very stable, um, or by a fresh capital raise, or by disposing um, an asset that we have and holding that cash uh, for the exit. Okay, question over there behind. Um, hi, I'd just like to ask, um, when managing these companies, is there any sort of conflict between job creation, which the government obviously wants, and investment return for the people investing in the funds? Now, I think firstly, it's uh, all commercial, and obviously the, the job is obviously secondary, but it definitely investment committees, and there are independent investment committees that make these decisions on behalf of the funds, would obviously also look at what if we're doing good. Uh, in terms of Section 12J, you're not allowed to invest in sin businesses, so, um, they, they, and, they're not invest in, and certain uh, fixed property can't, and banking and insurance products you can't. So they're, they're looking really to stimulate jobs. So by nature, some of the businesses, other than the tech businesses, because tech businesses, you get a few guys sitting around a computer who's going to scale up in the early stages, not creating the bigger jobs. But uh, a lot of the other businesses are. So just as an ad, there isn't a requirement in the legislation that you, you have to create jobs. The creation of jobs is really a yardstick which Treasury is using to determine whether this has been successful or not. So there's no actual requirement, and really, like Jeff said, depending on the commerciality of the business, that, that would be the first decision maker. Afternoon. My question is just around the fee structure. Um, first of all, performance fees, flat fees, and just how are the fees on Section 12J, is yours particularly an industry, how does that compare to your larger established PE funds? Um, yeah, just from an investment perspective, disregarding the tax break. So I, th I think not to comment too much on the, the, you know, what ha what's happening in the private equity outside of 12J space, there it's typically a 2 and 20, 20% you know, annual fee and 20% performance fee. In 12J, um, because of, you know, the, the small scale of the size of these funds, there are very few funds that have actually reached scale. I think Anuva is an example is a fund that has over 300 million rand invested in Anuva, so it's reached a significant scale. Most of these funds have to charge fees in order for them to be sustainable. Okay? And there are typically three types of fees that we see in the market. Um, first is a small upfront fee, a once-off fee, followed by an annual fee. This fee is between 2 to two, three, two and 3 percent per year charged for, you know, throughout the duration of the investment. And the third one, which, which for me, and I've been very outspoken about, is a controversial fee depending on how it's charged, and that's a performance fee. So a performance fee in my view, should be charged on your gross investment. I invest a million rand, I get a 1.2 million rand return, I should get, be charged a performance fee on my 200,000 rand growth. 
was there's a performance there. Many 12Js, and I would say a big portion of the market, they charge on net. So I invest a million, I get 450 back, my exposure is 550. Anything above 550, they take a performance fee. And in effect, if the fund um, loses some of your money and you get 700,000 Rand back, the fund manager could actually charge a performance fee where they've actually lost your money. So um, in my view, small upfront fee, um, an annual fee of 2.5%, and then a performance fee on, on your, you know, anything above your original investment. It ranges between, say, 2 to 3%. Um, it's not as popular as charging your normal 25 to 20%. I think when we're discussing fees, we must understand that this is not a, an extra desk in an existing investment company that's being created. Um, here you're running a company. So we're running, in our instance, a public company, and we're restricting the operating cost to 2% of capital employed. So, you, you know, there's a lot more uh, skill involved in choosing the investment, doing the due diligence, executing the investment, supervising, um, uh, growing the company and exiting. So it's difficult to compare it directly with, say, a unit trust fee or, or something uh, in the much more regulated market. I think I'd also, most of the Section 12 Js are managed by a management company. And that management, so the VCC doesn't carry any staff and it's got limited costs. So the management company pick up the costs. So in essence, that's the 2% or 2.5% management fee actually covers those costs. Um, I think depending on uh, the fund, they'll have different costs. Not every fund charges upfront fees. Not, and, every, and, and there are, as John T. mentioned, different uh, formulas for... Uh, performance fees. Some are got hurdles, some are on the risk capital, some are on the actual capital, and it's all depending a, a prop, a probably on the risk and the mandate of the fund. All right, so I have a question here. So 12J has uh, recently, or in the last three years, got the attention of financial advisors. That's independent financial advisors and wealth managers who sit in the private client suites uh, of the big six, six banks. Uh, I want to know from the members of the panel, what are the decision drivers that um, IFAs and wealth managers focus on when trying to choose between the 160 different offerings? So I think uh, the wealth managers going through the various panels are obviously going to have a look at the actual mandate. They're going to look at the corporate governance and the track record of the Section 12J or the house that manages it. I think they're also looking to see, uh, looking for diversification. Uh, one of the funds that we manage is a fund of funds. It's the first fund of funds of Section 12J funds in the market, which the fund managers like uh, because of the fact that you're getting different investors or different investment managers, you're getting different vintages and different sectors. So I think there's all, there's a host of uh, factors that uh, the wealth managers or the investment panels look at before putting it onto their, onto their books. Um, so just lastly, I think um, in considering Section 12J, for me there are a number of factors, but there are three factors which, um, you know, if you start exploring 12J, you'll start to realize are critical. The first is fees. Are the fees reasonable? Am I going to get a return based on half fees? Uh, secondly, how am I going to get my money out? And we've discussed it in great length. You know, is it possible after five years that I'm actually going to get some liquidity? And thirdly, um, funds that I invest in, have those funds actually invested funds that they're currently managing? And I think uh, a, a reasonable problem in the industry is 
12 days have raised capital, a lot of capital, and they're struggling to find suitable investment opportunities. So a critical component is, am I investing in a fund where I'm going to earn interest returns, or am I investing in a fund where I'm going to get operational profit, returns from operational profits? So. Okay, I'm going to have to unfortunately call it. We have run out of time. I think we could probably do another hour on Section 12J because we've hardly scratched the surface. Um, I, I can tell you that one of my um, friends has got a hospitality business and he is, is talking to uh, at Section 12J to get funding um, because it is actually a business where sometimes it's difficult to get funding from the banks. Um, his particular business is a hotel, and they actually have occupancy of over 100%. And the banks don't believe him um, when he tells them that. So they say, oh, well, then we can't fund you on that basis. Um, and the reason why he has 100% is that they, they actually rent out their rooms for the afternoon. So they're quite popular with um, people who don't have their wife or husband with them at the time. Um, so, but so I'm not sure if that qualifies because I thought it, you said no sin, no sin businesses. But anyway, it, that that's a true story. Um, we are, thank you to the panel. Um, they um, are very passionate about this space. I do hope that it achieves the aims it was set out to do, rather than just being a tax break for rich people. Um, please, if you do get into the space, it does need homework. There, you need to understand the guys that you're investing with because the team matters, um, especially in a risky space like this. And the fees matter. Those performance fees are, are important to understand well. If you don't understand performance fees, Johan Schroeder actually did an excellent paper on performance fees for the convention a few years back. So I'm going to punt his... Uh, he asked for a bit of advertising. So, Okay. Um, I think we've got uh, lunch now. So, uh, And then we're back at... No, not lunch. Oh, we've got another session. Oh, sorry. Okay. Please don't go to lunch. Um, we do have another session. Thank you very much. A round of applause for our panelists.